Welcome to the Nun Report, bringing your regular dose of truth, freedom, and weirdness with your host, Dan Nunn. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly interview edition of the Nun Report. I'm excited to have a young woman on. I met a recent trip back to D.C. We had a great conversation, and I was excited to get her on the show. She's a UCLA grad, worked on the 2020 Trump campaign, and is currently a committee woman with the D.C. Young Republicans. Today, we'll cover a range of topics, including the transient of America, gun control, liberal ideology on American campuses, and the America First MAGA movement, and more. So let's get right down to it, and welcome to the show, America First and MAGA supporter, Kingley, Kingsley Cortez. Kingsley, thanks for coming on today. I know you're busy, and uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Trying to get you on. There we go. Yeah, so anyway, why don't we start by by getting a little bit about you and about yourself. You went to UCLA, and I can't imagine what that was like, because um, you're a conservative, and have you always been conservative? Yes, I think I've always, you know, had an appreciation for American history and our unique founding and our principles of, you know, freedom and liberty. Um, so I've always been interested, I think, in the historical foundation of our country. And I think that kind of lent itself as I became older um, to being politically involved and to wanting to protect our Constitution, which sadly so many individuals on college campuses have zero interest in. Yeah. I can yeah. tell you at UCLA, being a conservative, being a Trump supporter, even just being someone, you know, who believes in traditional gender roles, who wants to be at home and have a huge family one day. People looked at me like I had three heads. I experienced <laughs> so much animosity from the left on my college campus. And I know conservatives around the country experience the same thing. And it's, it's really sad, too, because these institutions of higher learning, they really just succumb to group think. Right. They used to be places of ideas where we could debate and have open discussions about issues that were perhaps, you know, controversial. But today they just totally shut out any idea that does not conform to the pre-approved narrative. And I think that's a shame. I think it's making our young people dumber and I don't think it's preparing them for the real world at all. Yeah, well, you know, there's a big avoidance of people trying to. Um or people trying to avoid reality nowadays, it seems, uh, younger people, and they do it in a lot of different ways, and we'll talk about some of those too. It seems like the loudest voices that gets the le legacy media's attention um, are typically those you know, that scream and yell and, and get in your face and, and uh, get violent and that sort of thing. They throw tantrums, uh, the leftist ideology and whatnot. Um, but is there, is there more conservatism on campuses than what we're led to believe by the mainstream media. I mean, is there, are there more people like you and, and people that would call themselves conservatives just because they're not loud? Uh, we don't know about them. Is there, is there some of that? Or, please tell me if there's some of that. <laughs> yes. No, I can definitely attest to, you know, the silent majority is real. Um, and I experienced that on my college campus. Again, like you said, they're getting drowned out by these radical leftists screaming and shouting, doing these huge demonstrations and canceling them effectively, you know, in real life and online. So they're, they're afraid to speak up and to say what they think because they know if I say what I think, I'll be canceled by my peers. You know, if you're a little bit older than the college level, I'll lose my job. My family members won't talk to me. I've experienced a lot of those things just being a Trump supporter um, since 2016. So I think there are people who are afraid to speak out, but I will tell you, 
when someone does have the courage to speak out, people fall in line. There were times when I was in college where I disagreed with a professor in a class lecture hall, or I disagreed with something that my sorority was doing, perhaps, you know, talking about inclusivity and diversity training. And there were girls who would come up to me privately and say, you know, don't share this with anyone. But I agree with you. And thank you for saying that because I was too afraid to say it myself. So there are individuals, I think, out there, they exist who believe in traditional values. But unfortunately, they've just become kind of silenced and they've become rightfully, I think, fearful of the regime and the power it can exert over you. You see, you know, kids that are kicked out of a lecture hall or they write a paper that's conservative and they get a lower grade than they would have perhaps if they wrote a liberal essay. So there are real life consequences to being a conservative in today's world, especially for young people. I think they realize that, but I think that emboldens me to encourage others to keep fighting back and to keep, you know, being courageous and saying what we think because the left wins when you feel alone when you feel like no one else has your position, no one else sees the world like you do. But once you realize there are people on your side, it emboldens you, it encourages you. And that's really, I think, as conservatives, what we should be trying to do in our communities, whatever that is. If that's you know your school board, if that's your classroom, if that's your boardroom at your company, we should all be standing up for what is right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I can kind of relate with you in a way in that, um, I'm pretty active in the music scene out here in the Seattle area. Uh, Seattle, of course, is an extremely uber liberal uh, city, one of the best in the country, right? Or one of the most liberal in the country. We're trying to beat uh, San Francisco out. We're getting close. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, when I started voicing myself, whether it was on social media or then I, I said, you know, I need, to, I need to do something, figured myself and try to contribute in a way, which is why I'm doing this. And... I was, I mean, we lost shows because of it. We lost, um, you know, people didn't want to book with me anymore. There were venues that didn't want to bring us in anymore. And uh, yeah, so there is a real cost for, you know, speaking the truth, but isn't that always the way it is, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, expressing your faith or expressing your conservatism or something like that. And, uh, and it's really sad. And one of the things, you know, that, that it kind of, it, 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 it comes out as is some of the trendy things that are, uh, you know, as we talked about people avoiding reality and, you know, the trans movement, it seems to me is a kind of a trendy thing to do right now. I don't know uh, that it's, uh, I think a lot of people get involved in it just because it's the, it's the hip thing to do. It's what their friends are doing. It gives them acceptance. It gives them a way also, I think, to avoid reality to some extent. Um, and, and it's led to another issue that can divide this country. And of course, then the politicians and the the legacy media latch onto that and, and push it even further to create more division. Um, what are your general thoughts on that and, and on that trend and, and kind of your take on it before we dive into specifics? Yeah, no, you are so right, Dan. It's become a trend. It's become a fad. And it's funny because, you know, a fad used to be wearing bell-bottom jeans or something like that, but now it's chopping off your genitals, which is absolutely preposterous um, and evil and vile. And I think, yes, you're correct. We're seeing this pushed on young people. One in five Gen Z Americans now identify as, you know, gender fluid. So this has just become so pervasive. And we know these individuals, you know, members of the LGBTQ, whatever alphabet soup um, acronym they're using these days, they don't reproduce. So what they're doing 
is they're grooming young people so that they can have more and more members of their so-called, you know, marginalized community. And it's it's really sick because what they're doing is they're preying on the minds of young people, even younger than, you know, colleges. You're seeing kids at the preschool level who are being taught that there's more than a man and a woman and they're being taught it's okay to be whatever you want. These kids don't even have a concept of their sexual self. You know, most kids don't until they reach puberty. So it is absolutely disgusting to talk about matters like that with children who have no no concept of it. You know, I'm the oldest of four kids or four kids in my family and we have a loud household and my youngest brother thought he was a dog for two months straight. And of course right. we didn't encourage we didn't encourage that fallacy, right? We didn't say you're a dog. We said no, you're a boy. Um, but that's effectively what the left is doing. They're buying into, you know, this crazy lunacy of be whatever you want. And they're preying on the imaginative capabilities of young children, right? Kids pretend they're all sorts of things. They pretend they're Batman, they pretend they're Superman or a princess. Um, but to kind of twist that and to use that creativity in a negative way to confuse them is really, really evil. And we're seeing that in schools all across the country. We're seeing it in programming on television and books all across the country. And we have to stop it because this is irreversible damage that is being inflicted upon these kids. Yeah, I mean, the the obsession with the children is something that really gets me. And you brought up the word evil. And uh, when you look at whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's gender ideology or uh, affirmation, as they call it, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, abortion and they just seem to want to always attack the children. I guess the saving grace is what you brought up is that they're not breeding. So eventually they will uh, breed themselves out of existence. Or at least one would think it's, doesn't necessarily make me happy um it's kind of sad really so i don't know i don't know how we correct this and uh, you know there's a it it seems like there's a massive mental health uh, connection to this and and because a lot of people have mental health issues a lot of people go to therapy and do things like that from from all races and genders but i bet you the percentage is much higher on those that are trans and live in that lifestyle and whatnot. I know quite a few out here, um, including one family member, and I can tell you they are all kind of messed up mentally. What do you think? Right, no, and absolutely. And the transgender community has a suicide rate of about 40%, shockingly higher than the national average. So I think these are individuals who, you know, they're already mentally sick to begin with, but then what we're doing we're encouraging their mental illness. We're telling them it's good. We're telling them to go further. And what's worse is big pharmaceutical companies are preying on these mentally ill individuals. They are selling them drugs that are making them sicker. I mean, imagine being pumped full of foreign hormones. How unbalanced would that make you feel? I mean, it is no shock, I think, that we see a lot of rises in transgender violence across the country. The shooter in Nashville, for example, the shooter in Louisville yesterday, I think that was, um, he used he, him, so he used pronouns in his LinkedIn bio. So I think we're seeing a rise in these individuals being violent, resorting to violence because they're so unstable, they're so imbalanced, and they're not being helped. You know, we used to have a culture of if people were mentally ill, we got them the proper care, we got them the proper help, we put them even in asylums if we had mm -hmm. to. And those individuals now are just walking our streets. 
and it is a danger to everyone involved when they're just allowed, you know, to kind of have free reign um, over communities and over neighborhoods. These are individuals who need care. Um, and unfortunately, the left is just using them as a political pawn. They're using them to advance their, you know, kind of demonic ends. They're not helping these people. It's really, really disturbing. And I think us as conservatives, we have to keep calling it out. I argue with a bunch of conservatives, too, because I think all of us are united in fighting this at the adolescent level, right, of saying this is not okay for kids. But I meet a lot of conservatives that have no issue with transgender surgeries or hormone therapy for adults. And I take issue with that. I don't think as a society, just because we turn 18, we have the right to cut off our functioning organs or to inject ourselves with chemically altering drugs. We as a society should care for people and our fellow man and want to help them. So I think that we need to be united against this trend, transgender lunacy for all ages. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's that's the thing. I mean, aren't they you're messing with with God's design is what you're doing when you're you know, you're blocking hormones, uh, you're chemically castrating uh, young boys and men. And uh, and you are you're, you're messing with God's design. There's a reason why we are the way we are. And there's a reason we need to experience these things as we grow up so that we can mature and and have something to look back on that was a normal process of nature and and of god and you just i I really really fear what we're going to see in the future as this continues and how it's going to manifest itself in future generations and and how messed up people are going to be in their heads when they're 30 40 years old from having basically their childhood and their identity stolen from them um by those who thought they knew better and those who encouraged them to do things like that uh right you know, one of the things we see along in, in that same vein is, you know, men pretending to be women competing in women's sports. It's it, women have come so far, you know, you had to fight, you know, generations had to fight for equality, for voting rights, opportunities. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that women were not even allowed to have credit cards in their name. And all of those things have come to pass. And now you have women coming in and, or excuse me, men coming in pretending to be women and taking those things from you. And, you know, I'm not a woman, but I can imagine if I were, it would be a slap in the face to me. I mean, you see Leah Thomas, a dude beating a woman in the pool. You see male MMA fighters that are literally beating women's heads in, in the octagon and, and more. So where does this lead? I mean, do you find it disrespectful as a woman? Absolutely. You know, I'm someone who played high school sports, um, pretty seriously. Um, and I love playing sports. I think it's a really great avenue for girls to, you know, learn about teamwork, foster friendships, stay active, um, and just compete. I think there's so much you learn when you play sports, especially team sports, just about life. So I absolutely loved playing sports. I think it's horrific now that girls are, you know, they're having their space invaded um, by people who are just different than them. You talk about God's design, and you're exactly correct. God designed male and female, and that's it. And each individual is uniquely suited to their gender roles. It's it's almost like, wow, he, he had a great plan when he did this. You know, men were supposed to be the protectors. They're physically stronger. Um, they were supposed to, you know, be out there hunting while women were in the home, taking care of the children, foraging. Um, and I think when you look at our biology, you see kind of that human development. You see, right, oh, women are nurturing. And I think that a lot of girls that kind of succumb to this, oh, it's okay if a trans 
woman, whatever, is in my swim meet, is in my gymnastics meet, et cetera, is because they're nurturing. I think it's in a woman's kind of disposition to be accepting and to want people to feel comfortable. Um, but I think, you know, as girls, we do have to be protective of our spaces and draw lines, even if it's slightly uncomfortable. You know, I talk about those people earlier who are afraid to speak up because they don't want to be canceled. But this is an issue that we can't back down on because you're so correct. Women have fought for this right for so long. Um, and we want our daughters to be able to enjoy, you know, playing sports um, at the collegiate level, the high school level. Um, so this is something I think that's really important for women just to, you know, make sure that they're standing up for themselves and protecting from even, you know, the physical trauma that could come with fighting a, a dude or having, you know, someone opposite you, a uh, basketball defense who's, you know, much bigger physically, uh, much stronger. So it's definitely an issue that we need to stay firm on. Why do you think some women support this? I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to me. It's, um, I don't get it. I mean, are they just virtue signaling? Are they, uh, is it just part of their whole evil design to destroy this country. Uh, I mean, even uh, some professional athletes, uh, Rapinoe, um, you know, soccer player, she, she's fully supports men competing in women's sports. I, I don't get it. Right. And it's funny that she's a great example. It's funny that she said that because if you remember her team was beaten by a 15 year old boys team in Dallas, um, kind of a competitive soccer league. So she better than anyone should know the disparity um, in terms of gender because she was beaten by, you know, prepubescent boys. So there's clearly a difference in a, a man's athletic capability and a woman's athletic capability. And again, you know, just because something is unequal um, doesn't mean that, you know, one is necessarily better than the other. When you have two, it's comparing apples and oranges, right? You have two things that are uniquely different, have unique design. Um, and they should be able to, you know, do what they want to do in an athletic capacity. Um, but again, it shouldn't be unfair. They shouldn't be pressured to play with a man um, if they are a female. And I think that, you know, a lot of women fall into this trap because they've been sold the kind of crap that is third wave, wave feminism, right? They've been told, you need to be a cog in the corporate machine, not a mother. They've been told, you know, you need to go to school and you need to focus on school um, and not have interests that are feminine. Um, don't learn how to knit or anything like that that's actually pretty useful. Um, you know, you should be a girl boss. Um, you should get an abortion if you get pregnant. Girls are being sold, I think, kind of a, a, a false message, and they're being told to do things that won't make you happy. You know, statistically speaking, women are happier when they are mothers, because that's what they were created to do. And honestly, there's no more important task than producing and nurturing the next generation. But young girls have been told, you know, put off marriage, wait until you're 40, pursue your career first. So I think we have so many young women across this country who are really lost. They don't know where to turn. They're incredibly unhappy. They're not fulfilled sitting in a cubicle, you know, nine to five, staring at a computer screen. They want more out of life, but the left is telling them, that the most they can get out of life is just jumping up some corporate ladder. So I think we have people who are frustrated um, and they're kind of losing that sense of what it means to be a woman. And I think that that manifests in their confusion kind of manifests in this gender debate, right? They kind of say, I don't even know what it means to be a woman. I'm frustrated. I'm unhappy. So if someone else is unhappy, 
they can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter to me. So they kind of, you know, adjust their expectations and kind of embrace this laissez-faire approach to social issues. And social issues really are the fabric of our nation. I think Donald Trump did us such a service when he brought the culture war issues back to the front. The GOP had been the party of tax cuts um, for decades, and they never touched, you know, these social issues of abortion or trans issues, gay marriage. And I think him kind of bringing that to the forefront and allowing us to say, no, the social fabric of our country matters. It's important because you can't have a culture full of people who disagree on something as fundamental as what is a man, what is a woman, right? You have to have cultural cohesion. So I think the culture battle is certainly one worth fighting. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, Trump did. You, you, you're absolutely right, because the rest were too chicken shit to do so. Um, they were, you know, part of the establishment, part of the uniparty, and uh, they knew that they would lose some of their support if they if they spoke out on bold issues like that. I did an episode a while ago called Women Make Better Sandwiches. People freaked out. And, and because, like, well, a lot, of, a lot of the left, they live by headlines and titles. They didn't watch the video, but it was about... Um, you know, just exactly that is the traditional family, the nuclear family. And, and what you see, what you brought up is, you know, women being brought up to you, you must get an education, you must become a professional, you must work 60 hours a week, you must, um, you know, forego having children until you have success. And, and all of these things um, is contributing along with the, the, the transgenderism and, um, you know, parents no longer having authority over their children in many cases, on what they can and cannot do. And the state is taking more and more control and it's contributing to the destruction of the nuclear family, which is, is, is tearing apart this country. And you can see it. There's a direct correlation between, uh, uh, uh and, and even when both mother and father are home, are they really spending time together with their children? Are they really passing along the lessons that they've learned in their life so that, so that they can raise good men and good women? Um, and, and they can learn from, you know, think, are, are they laying that foundation? I guess is what I'm saying. And uh, in a lot of cases, I think they've got their face in a phone, They've got, um, you know, the parents are working, both parents are working too much. And then we forget to pause and understand the important things in life, right? No, absolutely. And both parents working, I think, is a great point. You know, you used to be able in this country for the majority of our history to support a family on a single income. Unfortunately, in this economy, the Biden economy, that has become totally unfeasible. Many families are faced with the reality that they have to have two parents working. So then your kids are raised by nannies that don't share your value system. Um, they're shipped off to daycare. And I think whether it's the man or the woman staying home, I would, again, prefer the woman because I'm more traditional. But, you know, families are different. Whether it's the man or the woman staying home, I think that is so valuable to have that parent with the kids every day, teaching them a value system helping them learn, helping them grow. It really does foster what you're talking about, that nuclear family. Um, so we need to, I think, as the GOP, make that a goal. Pro-family policies um, should be kind of the backbone of who we are because so many young people, I can say this, you know, myself and friends that I've talked to, mm -hmm. the idea of raising a family, of buying a home is very daunting. Our generation has not been able to accumulate wealth in the same way that, you know, my grandparents' generation did. Um, just to give you an example, in 1998, millennials held 13% of all national wealth. Today, that same age group holds 6%. So these individuals, you know, they're saddled with college debt for a degree that's maybe not super useful. Um, the economy is really hard. Inflation's kicking them in the butt. 
and they don't feel that, you know, they can settle down. Even the people I talk to, the conservatives, they say, you know, I'm working, I'm doing everything I can, but I don't have enough, you know, I don't have my nest egg to purchase a home to pay for a mortgage. It seems totally out of reach. So what you effectively have is young people living like serfs in their own country. They're renting absolutely everything they can and they don't own anything. Um, so I think that, you know, economically, we have a lot to do to get back to kind of the structure of pro-family economics where you can have someone stay at home, you can have someone work, um, and you can raise a big family if you want to. You shouldn't feel, I think, in this country prohibited as to how many kids you can have based on, you know, how the economy is going. We should be able to kind of provide that opportunity for everyone. I think Hungary is a great example of this. They've done a great job at, you know, incentivizing people financially to have children. They have tax cuts the more kids you have. If you have, I think, three or more kids, you don't pay any income tax. Um, so there, there are things we can do like that, I think, to kind of encourage um, family growth. And it's especially important when you see our country being overrun by illegal immigration at the southern border. We are being replaced um, by a foreign, you know, group of people who maybe necessarily don't share our values. They haven't been vetted at all. So I think, you know, as Americans, as traditional Americans, we need to kind of almost outbreed them in a sense. We need to make sure that we have huge families that are, you know, believing in the American dream and the American value system and that are uh, just in our school systems, in our boardrooms um, and fighting for us. Yeah, well, you're one of those uh, replacement theory conspiracy people I can see. And that's that's okay. Right. So am I. So we're on the same page there. You know, it, it seems like um, it, it kind of feeds into what, you know, the the world order wants is which is for people to own nothing. I mean, you see more and more of it. You're renting everything. Like you said, people are uh, leasing cars. They're renting apartments. They're um, uh, I mean, you can't even own software anymore. You have to subscribe to it. And so in essence, you, you're we're reaching we're going along a way where some people might own absolutely nothing, you know, other than the clothes on their back. And even those you can rent, I guess, or you can go to no, a clothing. Yeah. I, I, know, I know young women who do, you know, rent the runway. I even saw an ad the other day for someone wants to create a mechanism by which you could rent a smartphone um, or a laptop computer. So I absolutely think you're correct. I think people soon, sadly, will not want to own anything. And, and the liberals I know in my age group see no problem with this. It's really shocking to me. They they say, you know, I have no problem renting. I don't care if I own or not. It doesn't matter to me. And I think a lot of people who have grown up in this system of renting, they don't realize how important home ownership is in that it, or ownership of anything in that it gives you independence. You don't answer to someone. Um, you are in charge of what you possess. And I think there's a lot of fulfillment in that too. You know, you can be proud of what you own and what is uniquely yours. And sadly, a lot of people my age, they're never going to experience that. It's really disheartening. So I think there are ways we can go about changing that. Like I said, um, pro-family economic policies. And then I also just think, you know, so many of our jobs have been shipped overseas. If we can bring those jobs back home, that will explode our economy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is such a great feeling of accomplishment. I mean, I, I purchased my first home when I was 22 years old and it was, uh, you know, it was, wow. I mean, I felt like I'd arrived, right? Um, I sold my Camaro so that I could buy, use the down money from that for a down payment on a home. That's, that's how important it was to me, you know, and then I drove around in a junky little car for a while, but I had a house. Um, so 
I did want to ask you about one thing. Um, and, and so we're going backwards here a little bit. I assume you don't drink Bud Light, probably, probably never did. Not um, it's just <laughs> crummy beer, you know, but yeah, most people are, are getting away from it now and it's really hitting them in the pocketbook as it should. I love it when the, we can speak with our wallets um, like that. We don't have to cancel people. See the left, they want to cancel people. They want to destroy people, not just, not just make them financially worse, but they want to destroy them, destroy their family. When they talk about canceling, I don't think boycotting a product is canceling. Um, you know, Budweiser has traditionally been a, a manly beer or, you know, a working man's beer, if you will. And that's been kind of been their thing, you know, NASCAR and hockey and hockey games and football games and that sort of thing. Not that women don't like those things as well, but that hasn't been their, their focus. I mean, they even had an ad campaign called real men of genius for a very long time. And they did these big jokes about uh, men of genius and the things that they created, the dumb things they created. And then they bring in Dylan Mulvaney. Um, what in the world were they thinking? It's crazy. I mean, Dylan has been all over every social media feed I have. Um, he, I will not call him a she because he is a he. Um, he has gotten more brand deals, I think, than even a Kim Kardashian. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. I saw he's partnering with Tampax, with Olay, with Bud Light. You know, this guy is just making millions off of this transgender grift. And it's, again, incredibly offensive to women. This is a person masquerading as a female. I, to me, it's a really a slap in the face. Exactly, exactly. That's not putting on lipstick and a dress isn't what it means to be female. That's, you know, that's fun. We love to do that. We love to get dressed up. But true femininity is so much deeper, right? It's so much more spiritual, I think, than um, just, you know, the physical, just, oh, I put on eyeshadow today. Um, so that it, he's so incredibly frustrating. I can barely watch him without gagging. And I was, you know, never a big Bud Light person. Um, but now I'll never be a Bud Light person. Um, it's absolutely repulsive. And I, I do enjoy kind of seeing these woke companies go broke. You know, I enjoy seeing them face repercussions for their actions because they should. They're pushing things on a market that doesn't want it. And I'm really proud of conservatives when we push back and say, we're not going to we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to buy your product. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people will come at us then and say, oh, you're canceling just like the left does. And honestly, I would say I am kind of neutral on cancel culture in a sense. You know, I think that there will always be some orthodoxy, some belief system that is kind of enshrined in the public square. And I want to make sure that's mine. I want to make sure it's the belief system of American values, the belief system of Christian values. So I'm going to fight for that. And if that means, you know, canceling a transgender opinion, opinion effectively or company who embraces that philosophy, I will do so um, because that's for the betterment of our country. So, you know, I think there there is a place for kind of saying we're not going to embrace this. And I think conservatives are starting to become more comfortable with that. We, for years, lived by this kind of libertarian, live in, let live philosophy. And that philosophy has been really so detrimental to our country because live and let live, I think, works when you have a moral and an honest people. But as soon as you do not, you have people who are, you know, reading drag queen story time to your kids. And if you believe in the live and let live philosophy, there's nothing you can do about that. So I think, you know, there are values that we can say are supreme values and values that we as a country strive for and adhere to. 
um, that's not a bad thing. And I think conservatives are starting to understand that more and starting to push for that more. And that makes me, I think, really encouraged for the future. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And it is a tough battle because right now you have, uh, you know, a couple of generations of people who went through the, you know, the indoctrination grinder of, of American campuses that are now VPs in these companies making decisions like this person did to have a dude um, who's a complete caricature of a woman. I mean, women don't prance around and, and do, you know, they don't act like that. That's not, I've known a lot of women in my life. I'm no Casanova, but I've known a few women and not one of them ever acted like this dude does. It's, it's, it's weird, which kind of leads me to, to what I want to talk about next. And that's social influencers. It, it's a relatively new concept um, in the overall scheme of things becoming, it's gained a ton of traction. It's really popular. It's a big thing, right? You mentioned he has a lot of brands and um, that he's with and whatnot. Uh, the Biden regime is talking about bringing in basically an, uh, an influencer arm and bringing people right into the White House so that they can spread their propaganda out and primarily younger voters, I would imagine, so they could try to capture that that part of the demographic. But um, is that something do you think that the America First movement needs to be more aware of and 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 more involved in? I mean, if that's if that's the way of the future, if that's the battle, it's like. Um, it's like with the elections and we might talk about that if we have time is, you know, is playing by two separate sets of rules and keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. We can't continue to do that. So, and, and expect to win anyway. Um, so, I mean, is that a game that we need to get involved in more? Do you think? Absolutely. And, you know, like electioneering, like, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about ballot harvesting and things of mm -hmm. that nature. We're a little bit behind the eight ball when it comes to the more creative elements of, you know, our culture as a country. And I think we definitely need to step, step up. We need to have, you know, our own conservative musicians like yourself um, and TV writers um, and producers and, you know, artists and influencers and all of that stuff. And I would, I would point to Daily Wire as, I think, a good example of this. They have done a phenomenal job producing movies, um, putting out content that, you know, isn't obviously political, but it subtly is, you know, the conservative perspective. And they're doing it in a way that is, you know, telling a story and that is able to reach a lot of people who, you know, maybe they wouldn't read a Breitbart article ever in their life, but they'll come across, you know, a more cultural issue written by Daily Caller or Daily Wire, and that will kind of be their almost gateway drug into the conservative movement. So I think there are a lot of good organizations that are kind of at the forefront of this, but of course we need more of them. We need people, you know, who are willing to fight for conservative values in spaces that traditionally haven't been, you know, very conservative. Um, so I think that that's definitely something with the youth, especially that will help us because like you said, they're going to these crazy leftist universities where they're being indoctrinated, um, with this radical leftist ideology. So we, I think on our side, definitely need to counter that. We need to be almost indoctrinating ourselves, right? Putting out, um, not necessarily propaganda has such a negative connotation these days, but I think just putting out material that is captivating, that tells a story, um, that makes someone feel something, and that, you know, subtly includes the conservative message. I think the conservative message is one that can speak to the hearts and minds of every American of all ages. Um, so I truly believe that if we put in the effort, the money, the time, 
um, into pursuing these more kind of artistic lanes will see great results. And you know, you mentioned the radical leftist universities. Um, I will say, while those are completely toxic and terrible, I do kind of differ a little bit with the the Charlie Kirks of the world who say don't go to college, you know, pursue trade trade school, things of that nature, just start working away right away. I think that that is important for a lot of individuals. I think that some people, you know, they don't like the classroom. They want to go make money. They're entrepreneurial. They have a great idea. They should definitely, you know, forgo college. But I think our more intellectual individuals who you know are financially able to pay for college should 100% go because like you said we have all of these people that get turned out of you know a radical leftist university and then they get put on some company and they totally change the fabric of the country so we need to have our own people in those boardrooms right with those same degrees we can't kind of seed every job that requires a college degree to a radical lefty. If you are, you know, a talented kid um, and you believe in conservative values and principles and you want to go to college, you absolutely should do it because we need someone like you who's going to be a lawyer or who's going to be on the board of a company um, or who's going to be, you know, working in economics or pursuing, you know, a medical field or something like that. Because we can't, again, live like serfs in our own country. We can't be overrun by this professional class that has these degrees um, and are doing all the decision making um, and kind of be left to the wayside. So I think we kind of need to be a jack of all trades. We need to be a master of both. We need to have, you know, our carpenters, our plumbers, that stuff is so important, our farmers. Um, but then we also need to have, you know, our white collar jobs um, and individuals kind of from all angles in artistry as well, who are just fighting for our values. We need kind of a flood the zone approach, I think, because we have a Herculean task in front of us. Saving this country is not going to be easy. It's going to take an all hands on deck mentality. Yeah, well, and you, and you struck it good is, is you need um, you need balance. You know, and, and yeah, we do need to have people in the trades. We do. I mean, that's how I was raised. I, I uh, started fishing in the Bering Sea when I was 15 years old and, and never looked back. Um, and that worked for me. And, but we also need, like you said, a balance and intellectual side where we can't just cede corporate boardrooms to all the left leftist loonies. You know, we can't, we can't do that. If we do that, we, we've lost. We, I mean, if we decide that that's the way to go, you know what, we're just all us conservatives, we're just going to scoop shovels and everyone else can run the country and the corporations, you know, that, that's not a winning strategy either. So um, you bring up a great, great point there. The uh, let's shift gears here a little bit and, and touch on on some of the violence people are committing with firearms. Um, imagine you have an opinion on that. Most people do, and and with the recent um, you know tragedies that have happened, there's there's certainly something like that. I mean, Kamala, Kamala Harris went to Tennessee to prop up a insurrectionist lawmaker and did not even visit the families of the victims that were down there. It's unbelievable. It's disgusting. Um, and I'm a big second amendment supporter. I, uh, own quite a few firearms myself. Uh, I love to shoot. Um, you're much closer to Gen Z than me. In fact, are, are you Gen Z? I am. Yes. I'm yeah, older yeah. than Gen Z, but I, I just made it. <laughs> yeah. So you're right at the, you're right at the top of it. So, um, and what is it? So, so you, you know, you, you've been around these people and, and it just seems to be, uh, you know, what is it with their militant? obsession really to eliminate the second amendment and and disarm america i don't get it yeah i think you know so many people that i meet um that are the loudest about this are individuals from cities um and they've just you know never really held a firearm it hasn't been something that they've grown up with um i'm from chicago myself but i was fortunate enough 
to have parents who were super into guns and would take us, you know, to the range. And I grew up shooting sporting clays um, and learning how to treat a gun with respect um, and use it safely. And I think if you're someone who hasn't grown up with that, who hasn't learned that skill, um, guns are probably pretty scary, right? Because you don't know how, you don't know what capacity they have. You don't know how to safely use them. Um, you're taught they're very evil and they are, you know, they're a weapon that can cause a lot of destruction, um, but used respectfully and used um, adequately. They're a great tool for hunting, um, for all sorts of things, um, even just for sport, for enjoyment. Um, so I think it's kind of the lack of familiarity for a lot of young people. I think it's just kind of something that's gone out of fashion. And again, I think it speaks to this kind of breakdown of the nuclear family, right? You don't have dads anymore who have the freedom from their, you know, work hours to teach their son, hey, this is how you use a gun. This is how you load it. This is what the safety is. Um, so I think there are a lot of kids that are kind of left to their own devices and they wind up playing video games um, or surfing the Internet. They're not outdoors. They're not learning about nature. Um, or about weapons, or about, you know, anything that has been so traditionally masculine and kind of important to our society since, you know, basically the dawn of time. Um, so I think it's kind of two things. It's, you know, the unfamiliarity, the ignorance of a lot of people who are in metropolitan areas. And then I think it's just, you know, again, the, the breakdown of the family structure. And parents used to teach their kids all sorts of skills, all sorts of things. And now kids kind of just look to teachers for guidance and for advice. And unfortunately, they're not learning life lessons, right? They might learn this is when the Civil War started, this is what it was about, but they're not going to necessarily learn how do you become a successful, you know, homemaker? How do you become a wonderful mother? They're not learning that stuff, sadly. Yeah, no, definitely. And I look at, um, you know, I look at you and then I look at people like, say, David Hogg. Um, you know, the guy is grifting off of something that he never even was at to begin with. And and he's just so far over and so, so one-sided. And he's got blinders on for just this one thing. And they never, these people never talk about the criminal aspect of it. You know, these are people that are doing bad things with a tool. It's not the guns that are doing it. It's the people that are doing it. And, you know, I think, God, what, what causes a person to pick up a gun and go out and just kill people you don't even know? That is not a sane person. It's not even a good person. Um, is there evil? Yes. I mean, absolutely. I think people like David Hogg are really just kind of naive. They don't see that evil that is so kind of a part of the human experience. You know, we are a fallen um, people, we truly are. Um, and I think there's evil in society. You can never completely eradicate it. And that's what these people are kind of searching for. They're searching for this utopia where humans will do no wrong. I think, you know, more realistic people, especially on the conservative side, they recognize people will do bad things always. We can never eradicate, you know, murder from our society um, or things like that. But that means that realizing that we have to protect ourselves. We have to take measures to ensure that we're safe, that our families are safe, that our communities are safe. Um, and you know, the adage is so true. The, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Um, I, you know, grew up 
in, I went to high school um, in the middle of Indiana where police response time was, you know, 13 minutes. I think a lot of people are in that kind of scenario. So, you know, that's a lot of time. You don't have the luxury of waiting for the cops to arrive. You have to be able to protect yourselves. And I think too, a lot of conservatives will often point to, you know, using guns for protection for hunting. And they're so important for that. But I think what our founders really had in mind when they drafted the Second Amendment was that a citizenry with guns is so important because it protects against tyranny, right? And I think this is something that feels so kind of foreign to us today because our government is so wonderfully stable. We're not like a South American country with tons of, you know, turmoil and coup and turnover and all that stuff. Um, but if there ever were to come a time um, where the government is tyrannical and oppressive um, and needs to be overthrown. You don't want to have a situation where only the government has weaponry and the citizens have absolutely nothing. Um, so I think that's what our founders really had in mind when they devised that. Of course, they also, you know, love to use guns for sport and that thing um, and all that stuff. But I think that, you know, what the Second Amendment means is much deeper. It's not just, you know, I love Blake Masters from Arizona. He's a big, big, uh, great guy. And he um, had an awesome video about guns. And he said, you know, guns aren't just for duck hunting. And it's so true. And I think, you know, seeing conservatives kind of embrace that more um, is going to be how we overcome the individuals like David Hogg, who are just, you know, arguing that guns look scary and that we should eradicate them. And that will solve all of our problems. You know, it won't. People kill people with guns, with cars, sorry, with knives, with cars, all sorts of things. Evil will never eradicate completely. Um, but we can do our best as a society to ensure that we have those levels of protection, whether that's from, you know, criminal elements in your neighborhood or even your government, God forbid. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, good stuff. I mean, that's, I, I agree completely. And um, you worked on the Trump campaign in 2020 and uh, that had to have been pretty exciting. What, what was it like from the inside? I mean, did you ever like have contact with, with Trump himself? And um, if so, what's he like? Yeah, no, it was a wonderful experience. It was also, I think, you know, I learned a lot because I expected to be kind of let go one way or another. We would either win or lose on November um, 3rd. And then I wound up, you know, working at campaign headquarters essentially until January 6th. And the chaos of litigating the election was definitely, I think, a historical and unique experience. So I was fortunate to be a part of that. Um, and I did get to meet the president. I got to go to a meeting in the Oval Office about an hour with him. Um, and it was it was really wonderful. He was even more extravagant um, than I had anticipated. You know, everyone says he's kind of larger than life. Um, but he was just something else. Right when I walked in the room, he told me I was good looking, which, you know, I think a president has probably never said that to someone in the Oval Office, but he just doesn't care. He's like your grandpa. He just speaks what's on his mind. Um, you know, he ordered, I think, three Diet Cokes while I was in there. Um, so he was definitely all that I anticipated and more. And I think, you know, I'm so thankful for him and for the movement that he started, even though 2020 didn't go as we had hoped, just because he, I think, in many ways was the great revealer. You know, I was kind of an establishment politico my whole life. I liked people like Paul Ryan, I'm ashamed to say. Um, but I think he really, in many ways, revealed 
the swamp and he showed us these people's true colors before him i truly had no idea how much you know the lobbyists and the congressman cronies in dc hated americans outside their bubble right the outside the coastal elite cities they have so much disdain for traditional americans and for their values and i think before trump i really didn't understand that i didn't realize that and i didn't realize how much they had sold those people out um, to pursue, you know, foreign business ventures to ship our jobs to China. So he, I think, in many ways pulled back the curtain, and I'm so incredibly thankful for that. And I think, you know, draining the swamp is a task that's difficult, um, and it won't just be Trump that does it. I think, you know, he's gotten the ball rolling, but draining the swamp is going to be, you know, a 20, 30-year process. These people are deeply entrenched in our capital here where I reside now. Um, so getting rid of them is not going to be easy, but I'm so thankful to Trump for getting this, you know, America first populist movement going. And I think that he's gonna do great things if elected in 2024, I certainly hope he is. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's a, cause the movement has become more than Trump. And I think, I don't think the left fully understands that. I think they, they feel if they can take Trump down that the whole movement will just go away. And that's not how it works. And it, it's it's way, way past that. Um, I'm a huge Trump supporter. Uh, I think he is exactly what America needs to right the ship. In fact, um, I think he's the only person who can do it, to be honest with you. Uh, he has the experience. He knows if he gets in again in 24, and I pray that he does, uh, he knows more what he's walking into. The learning curve is not going to be there like it was the first time. I don't, I'm not sure he understood the depth of of the and the depravity of the swamp and what was going on there and and he probably kept some people around him that he shouldn't have and um and he paid for it you know it cost him right definitely and you bring up a great point about you know there's kind of a learning curve i think um you know the like we talked about the swamp is just so entrenched um, and I think that these agencies, especially these executive agencies, the bureaucracy is just so bloated and it's so full of, you know, lifetime careers who have been there for, you know, 20, 30 years who don't necessarily agree with the Trump message, yet they're still serving in a quote unquote Trump agency. Um, so I think there's a lot that he can do this next time around with just cleaning house, firing all those people, maybe even getting rid of some agencies. I would recommend the IRS and the FBI at the top of that list. Um, but I think there's a ton that he can do um, this next time around. And what I love about him so much is that he is the one who is feared by the establishment and all of these kind of corrupt individuals in D.C., in Silicon Valley. Um, and for me, it's kind of the enemy of my enemy is my, is my friend philosophy. Um, so for me, that's why I love him. He scares the people at CNN. He scares the people at Facebook. Um, he scares Mitch McConnell and the people at the FBI. I love him then. That's my guy. He's going to fight for me against these individuals who don't protect me. Um, who don't believe in my value system. He's really our fighter. And I think no one else is more tested and successful at doing that. You see a lot of people talk about DeSantis, and I think he has done a wonderful job as governor in Florida. Um, and I think, you know, Florida is a great state, but I just, I don't think he's quite ready for prime time. I think the federal level is a little bit tougher, it's a little bit meaner, it's more difficult. You even look at his response to the Alvin Bragg indictment of Donald Trump. He said, oh, that, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with Florida, so I'm kind of gonna stay out of it. We need, I think, a president who is unafraid to go after a corrupt 
um, prosecutor, DA in any state. We need someone who's willing to kind of blow up the system and go after these individuals that are against the American people. And Trump is the one that is willing to do that. He's shown us he can do it. So we should let him finish the job. Yeah, well, well, DeSantis, too. I mean, he's he's working with the unified government down there in Florida, too. He's there's really there's really no opposition. And so they can pretty much do whatever they want. I don't know how he would function in D.C. with a split Congress um, and how, how he would how how would he have the strength, you know, like Trump does to be a bull in a china closet and just walk through fire and do whatever it takes, even if it makes him look bad. And um, even if he gets bad press, I had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, for a while with uh, Raheem Kassam when he was out here in Washington. And um, as you know, he's a huge Trump supporter. And he brought up, uh, you know, something he just recently started coining the phrase of, and that's make America glorious, not just make America great again, but make America glorious. Because uh, how did he say it? Something like, um, you know, a lot of people don't even, you know, great is kind of a glib word. A lot of people maybe don't even know what America was like when it was great. What are we making it great again? It's great right now is what they think. So, um, but glorious, I think people can relate with that. It's something that means you're victorious, you're powerful, you're strong, um, you know, you're glorious. And, and he has a good point, you know. Um, tell me about young Republicans. It's, uh, you are uh, the, the committee woman there in Washington, D.C., for, and I checked out the website a little bit. I don't know a lot about the organization. I think that there's probably a lot of people in my generation that don't know about the organization or that even exists. So why don't you, why don't you just talk about that a little bit and let us know what that's about. Yeah, no, so absolutely. Um, the DC Young Republicans was an organization that existed for a long time in DC, but unfortunately it was so traditionally run um, by people who didn't believe in the America First message, by people, you know, who were pro Paul Ryan um, and all of those kind of old guard Republicans that just aren't really, you know, as America First people, we know that they're not for the American people, that they're for their own interests. Um, so we recently took over the club, a group of kind of MAGA populist insurgents um, took over the club. Um, we won a free and fair election and ousted the previous board. Um, who was, you know, afraid to have speakers like Matt Gates come because they thought it would be too controversial. Um, so we actually had our first meeting this past Monday and we had Matt Gates speak. So that was, I think, kind of a great way to set the tone and to let people know that this is going to be a club of the America First movement, the movement that Trump started, kind of the new right. We're not going to be the old school Republicans um, who just talk about tax cuts, who, you know, lobby for endless foreign wars. We're going to be the America First club of, you know, restraint abroad um, and anti-trans stuff, pro-life um, issues are going to be important. So we're going to really kind of become an activist club, and I'm really excited to be their national committee woman. Um, we have a great group of folks and our, our membership has already grown since we've, since we've taken over. So, you know, I think there's a lot that young Republican clubs can do. Unfortunately, so many of them like ours are overrun by rhinos. Um, but I think if we, you know, invest the time in making these clubs the place to be in their respective city, there's a lot we can do to draw people from all walks of life and all careers to our clubs. Um, 
you know, I lived in New York for a long time and they have a great Republican club there, the New York Young Republicans Club. And they do incredible events where, you know, it's a black tie gala or it's a wonderful speaker series. And that encourages young people to go, right? People love to have something that's exclusive that they can go to, a club that's theirs. Um, and it's a great way to network and to meet people. So I'm so excited for our DCYR club's future. I think we're going to do great things. Um, and I think that we're going to represent really what conservatism is about now. We're going to bring it to the America first Trump era. And I think, you know, that's something that's sorely lacking in D.C. There are people who have been here for, you know, 40 years um, and their ideas are antiquated. And I think that we're going to start to change some of those minds. And I'm really excited about it. So as we start to wind down here, what what can we um what, what, what do we need to do to win in 2024? I mean, I, I think it's it's a must-win situation. I can't imagine America being even recognizable if we go through uh, an additional four years of, of something like Biden or even worse. Um, so, you know, from your perspective, I mean, we need to do, I think we need to do some ballot harvesting to the extent that we can. We need to, they're, they're so far ahead of us in this game, though. I mean, they have a machine out there that is uh, well-tuned. Uh, they have activists out there that are, that are deeply committed to what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. How can we get there too? I think ballot harvest, absolutely. Um, we are behind in terms of that. We don't have a lot of people on our side that know how to do that. They have a lot of the infrastructure left over too from like the mob days um, in various cities. So they're kind of practiced at this. They have all of the tools in their toolbox to be able to do it well. So we need to quickly adapt and quickly learn how to ballot harvest. And I think in simplest terms, we just need to get involved. There are so many conservatives who, you know, believe in the America First message, who believe in Trump 2024, but they're busy, right? They have a, a job that takes a lot of their time um, or what have you. And I think we all need to put in the work and get involved. Like you said, the left is great at activism. They have people who are willing um, to kind of put in as many hours as it takes. And we need to have that same philosophy and realize that there's a place for everyone. You know, there are positions for our kind of keyboard warriors to be out there and pushing the envelope on social media and putting out great, interesting, and kind of persuasive content. There's people that need to be running for their school boards, volunteering at their churches, talking to their neighbor about why they're going to vote for Trump. Um, so there's, you know, there's a position and a role for everyone to fill. I think, and I think as conservatives, we come, we sometimes just kind of sit back until it's election day. And then we vote in person. We always dominate in person voting numbers, but we don't kind of realize that elections are a long, almost two year process. So we need to start now. We need to get involved in whatever it is we have time for um, and make sure that our communities know where we stand, know where we are on the issues. We need to door knock. That's huge. Um, so I think just simplest terms, get involved, do whatever it is you're good at, you know, hone your natural skill too. I think everyone has a knack for something. Maybe you're great at design. Maybe you're great at music. Um, maybe you're great at just hosting people, you know, host a fundraiser, um, do some graphic design for conservative ideas or issues. Um, there's so much that everybody can contribute. And I think as conservatives, we just kind of need to step up to the plate and realize that our country's at stake. I try to think a lot about, you know, how would I approach our country when I talk to my children about it? 
someday? You know, will they say if they're, you know, faced with a country that's totally in decline, with an economy that's in shambles, um, with a country with no national identity, if they look to me and say, you know, where were you when my country was kind of going to shit? And I don't want to say I was sitting on the sidelines or, oh, I was focused on my career and on my promotion. I want to tell them I was in the fight. And I think everybody needs to have that mentality. Yeah, you know, I, I preach that all the time. And, and I, I say, you know, it's it's hard to affect change on a national level. It really is. And to, uh, you know, to do something like that. But you can certainly do things at a local level. And there's things that you can do. And in fact, we need to do it at a local level. Um, you can just, you don't, even if you can't, you know, run for a position in a school board or a county council or something like that, you can go to the you can go to the meetings, you can give testimony, you can let them know what you think. And, you know, just because your kids aren't in school doesn't mean that that's not important because, you know what, the community is important and local communities are how things change. And, and um, I think you, you can lose sight of that. And, and like you said, everyone has a skill. And if you don't have a skill, maybe you got a few bucks, you know, and you can give it to somebody who, who's putting their skills out there. And uh, I know your website, uh, WashingtonDCYRS.com. Uh, is the is the DC Young Republicans website? Um, can people give financial support there if they want to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, just you know, follow us on social media. We're really trying to grow our presence there, so more people hear about us and we can reach more minds. Um, and we'll also just be having great events. So you know, if you're ever if you ever find yourself in the DC area, um, feel free to support us. Um, hopefully, you know, we can change a lot of young minds in DC and bring some fresh new ideas here. Okay. So, uh, what's next for you? Kingsley Cortez, what short term and long term? what's up? Yeah. So funny you asked that. I actually was previously working at Getter, which is kind of a right wing social media site. I'm sure some of your viewers are familiar with it kind of functionally feels like a Twitter. Um, and I just left there and accepted a job today. Um, at the Center for Renewing America. They are led by Russ Watt, who is the, you know, budget manager in the Trump 2016 um, era in the admin there. And I'm really excited about it. I'm going to be their digital media manager. So just focusing on, you know, TV hits, putting out content that's engaging and fun. Um, so I'm really excited to do that here in D.C. Um, and I think, you know, the organization is is very Trumpian, and I think that there's a lot um, that they can contribute to kind of this America First movement. So I'm really excited to be a part of the team. That's great. You know, um, thanks for coming on. And that's that's uh, WashingtonDCYRS.com. And um, I would encourage everybody to just check out uh, the the Young Republicans clubs in general around the country. There might be one, might be one in your own in your own city that you can support. Um, and I really am, am glad you came on because I wanted to get a perspective of a, a Gen Z person and someone from uh, your generation. When I met you back there in, in, uh, in, this, in that uh, stinky cigar club, I, um, I mean, man, I opened up my suitcase when I got home and it was, whew. but, uh, <laughs> but um, I had to send those clothes to the cleaner. But uh, anyway, it was, I was like, man, I need to get her perspective on the show because uh, my a lot of my listeners are in the older demographic, and I think sometimes we lose hope. I think sometimes we wonder, wow, is there is there hope for us? Is there a younger generation coming up that has the right kind of values and the mindset and the attitude and the the wherewithal and the determination to do what needs to be done to to keep America being America so that we don't go the way of the Roman Empire? Um, so anyway, again, uh, I thank you for coming on. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon. 
and uh, fun talk. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hey, anyway, uh, hey, thanks for listening today. If, if you've just been on the radio or one of the uh, podcast sites, make sure to check me out on rumble.com slash the nun report. And um, again, you can go to uh, Washington, D.C., YRS.com, and you can check out what Kingsley Cortez is doing back there in Washington, D.C. to push forward the America First agenda. Um, you can also catch me on all the social media sites at The Nun Report, except for TikTok, because I don't do that commie BS. Or you can just go to my website, thenunreport.com. It's all there, one stop, one shop. Anyway, until next time, as always, may the odds be ever in your favor. Cheers. <laughs>